Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Amen. The word of God for our special consideration this morning is found in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, why did God give Jesus a family? Why did he have him enter the world as an infant? Really, first as an embryo in Mary's womb. And, and then grow up with all the struggles and learning and the waiting of childhood. Wouldn't it have been more efficient, say, to just have him appear on the earth, fully grown and ready to start teaching God's word and, and doing God's work? Well. That may very well seem efficient to us and make sense in a purely human way. But God's thoughts and ways are higher, better, deeper, and just more right than ours. Our reading from Hebrews today helps explain why it was not just providing for, for character development or an interesting backstory that led the father to send his son to be born of Mary and then laid in a manger in Bethlehem. It was all actually necessary for our salvation. He had to become like his brothers in every way in order that he would be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, so that he could pay for the sins of the people. Jesus needed to experience everything every other human experiences in order to serve as our substitute in life and in death. He had to share our flesh and blood and everything that goes along with that being flesh and blood like that. Things like conception and birth and growth pains and struggles and learning. Even being tempted to sin. This is what gave him the power and the position to destroy death and the devil through his death and to help us when we suffer or are tempted. It was the Father's will and the Son's willing choice to become your brother and my brother so that we would be saved, so that all of us together could become God's children. That is the most important reason why God gave Jesus a family. But it's not the only reason. We could also point out that he sets us an example to follow, not just in Christ's humble obedience to his parents, but also in Mary's and Joseph's humble fulfilling of their roles as earthly mother and father. But we would have to say that that's a very limited example to follow because once we get past the Christmas stories of Jesus' infancy and everything connected with the visit of the Magi, the only story we have of his childhood is the one that is our gospel today. 
the, the story of the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. And, and there are so many exceptions and extraordinary occurrences in that account that it would be hard to tell any child to follow Christ's example in the specifics. And the generalities are basically just be obedient and respectful to your parents as the commandments say. And the last part of our reading from Exodus 20, which is echoed in the verses from Ephesians we just read, well, spells out that commandment. But God put Jesus into the care of real human parents as a real human child for another reason that is much greater than, than just a reminder to be obedient. And that reason was to put God's blessing even more vividly, clearly, and authoritatively upon his institution of the family. He wanted to demonstrate in no uncertain terms that family matters. Which is why, of course, he gave us the commandment instructing us to honor our fathers and mothers. And also, why he told fathers and mothers to be diligent and disciplined in raising their children. Just as human society makes statements about what is important by putting things into laws, so the Lord made clear that family and family relations are important by putting them into His law. Now you may recall that we speak of three uses of God's law. The first, which applies to everyone, is the law as a curb. We, we might also call it a guardrail. That the obligations and threats of the law help keep people and their evil desires and inclinations from getting too far out of line, hurting themselves and destroying society. Even the most wicked or atheistic parents still expect their children to obey them. And, and even the most indulged and undisciplined children recognize that there is something unusual or even improper about their lack of limits and consequences. We also see evidence of this commandment's curbing power in the fact that basically every society there is, from time immemorial, has recognized what a family is supposed to look like and that every child is best off with a loving mother and a loving father married to each other who, who work together to, to guide that child into responsible adulthood. Whenever godless aberrations from that design have been advocated, if they are not met immediately with decisive disapproval, well, they have always had unhappy, even disastrous results. The second use of God's law is also meant for everyone, but is not so often or consistently applied to everyone. We refer to the law as a mirror, not to show a person who is the fairest of all, but to show a sinner his or her sins. In the way that you look into a mirror before you go out to, to see that your hair is standing up in two different directions, there is spinach in your teeth, that your shirt has a ketchup stain, that a monster zit has formed on your cheek and you actually forgot to put on pants. 
with the Lord's commands regarding the family, it should not be too hard to look into the mirror and see how we have failed to live up to his standards and according to his design. As children, we disobey our parents. We talk back to, grumble about, resist, and, and speak ill of them. And even as adult children, we all too often fail to give them the honor they are due. As mothers and fathers, we fail to set enough appropriate limits to, to guide our children or set too many too strictly. Or worst of all, what limits we set, we apply inconsistently, which leads to confused, uncertain, and often angry children. We see our sin against this commandment also in, in criticizing God's design for the family, presuming that we know better than our Creator. In, we see it also in, in, in saying no as married couples to His gift of children for no reason other than self-interest. And in failing, whether as parents or as fellow Christians who also have a role and responsibility, to see those we baptize brought up in the training and instruction of the Lord, either not caring or assuming somehow that, well, it'll just happen on its own. So praise God that He has provided a way to change the view we get when we see ourselves as we really are in the mirror of the law, whether it reveals sins against His design for marriage and the family or sins of any other type. You see, God likes that view even less than we do, much less than we do. And as a perfectly just and holy God, He hates sin and cannot abide its presence. But in love for us, because He did not want to see us suffer, He provided a solution. A solution that would remove every stain and all filth from us. He sent His own beloved Son to wash away our sins with the shedding of His blood and to give us His perfect righteousness as our own. Through Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, we are not only saved from death and hell, which we deserve for our sins, but we are also sanctified, made holy, so that now when God looks at us, He does not see our guilt or our shame, but sees instead His own Son's glorious, perfect holiness. And in thanks for that, and in the new power that we now have as the sanctified sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, we are able, as only the children of God are able, to use His law in the third way, as a guide. Now we look at it. And instead of condemnation, we see encouragement and instruction. This is how to live and how we want to live. We recognize that obeying our parents and giving helpful, loving, and consistent discipline to our children is not only the right thing to do, but it is the best thing for us 
for them and even for the people living around us and, and society in general. Paul points out here in Ephesians 6 that the fourth commandment is the first commandment with a promise. For the Israelites who first heard it at the foot of Mount Sinai, that, that promise specifically told them that following God's will by honoring His design for the family would bind them to the land that they were being given and the land to them. Left unsaid at this point was the flip side. Disobedience would sever their ties to the land. And that is, sadly, eventually what happened to them. But for believers ever since, the promise attached to the commandment here reminds us that following God's design will always give us better results than any alternative. We end up not only with a happier and more loving and peaceful family, but also with the additional blessings that come from having such a family as our foundation and refuge when we go out into the world to learn, to play, to grow, to work, and eventually to form new families in Christ. And the Apostle especially wants us to remember the only way that children will grow up to be not just Christians who believe the minimum necessary for salvation, but mature Christians with solid faith and divine wisdom who will in turn form Christian families of their own. He tells fathers especially, but it also falls to Christian mothers and also to us as brothers and sisters in Christ to bring children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So it's not just teaching kids to obey and to be nice. It's also reading them Bible stories, explaining why some things are right and some things are wrong and how it's God who decides. Teaching them to love Jesus and to trust God in all things. Helping them learn the Bible, whether at home or in Sunday school, and the catechism, and, and so much more. A visitor to your home should be able to tell from both the things you do with your children and the things you talk about with them. Raising them to love Jesus the way you do is your first priority. And another way that you show that is by honoring yourself and for your family, the other commandment in our reading from Exodus, which Mary and Joseph obviously also honored, and that Jesus honored even as a 12-year-old boy when, when he sought out the teachers of God's Word in the temple. Remember the Sabbath day by setting it apart as holy. Spoke specifically to the people of Israel about keeping the seventh day of the week free from work so it could be dedicated to the Lord. But its meaning and its application was and is much broader than that. It's all about prioritizing not only the worship of God, but prioritizing His Word in our lives. Certainly, it means coming to church or attending online in these weird times when coming in person might not be an option. 
but it also means that all the things that, that we should be doing to, to raise our children to know and love the Lord, we will also be doing and demonstrating for ourselves, for our own growth in faith and sanctification, reading our Bibles, meditating on God's truths, praying for guidance and insight, putting into practice the things we learn in the Scriptures. As Luther explained it in his small catechism, we should fear and love God that we do not despise preaching in His Word, but regard it as holy and gladly hear and learn it. So, sounds like a good plan for a new year, doesn't it? You don't really have to, to make it or call it a resolution because it's really all laid out for us already, not only as an ideal to strive for, but the actual ability as sanctified children of God to, to do it in love and thanks, to center your life on the Lord and His worship and His Word, and to center your family the same way. Whether you are a, a parent or a child, whether you are married or single or a grandparent or, or a guardian, the story of Christ's first miracle, changing the water into wine, is often suggested as a, a good sermon text for weddings because by his attendance and his honoring of that bride and groom with his miraculous gift, he put his seal of approval on and gave his blessing to the institution of marriage. That Jesus was made part of a human family with not only a mother and an adoptive father, but also with brothers and sisters and presumably aunts and uncles and cousins and more, that Jesus was made part of a human family sends the same kind of message. God wants us to know that it's not just the rules that he has laid out about marriage and childhood and parenthood that are important for us but he wants us to know the importance and the blessing that he places on these things and how devotion to and study of his word is central to it all. There are many voices in our society telling us that the old ways of looking at relationships and connections are, are out of date and utterly dispensable. Every day seems to bring a new definition of things that God has instituted and humanity has understood from the beginning. But both his instruction and the life of Jesus make it eminently clear to all who will hear and listen. Family. Family which he institutes, loves, guides, and empowers. Family matters to God. So family also matters to you and me. Amen. Please rise. May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and in His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and establish you in every good work and deed. Amen.